Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hey, good afternoon, Scott Luton and Allison Giddens here with you on the second edition of This Week in Business History Live. Allison, how you doing? Hey, good. How are you? Did you see the amateur theatric effect I put on that live side? I like it. I was impressed. <laughs> hey, well, so this, Allison, there's a lot of folks may know that you're one of our beloved guest hosts here at Supply Chain Now. I love some of the episodes more focused on supply chain. And, and really global business that you and I have tackled. Our most recent one was, I'm going to not get her name, down in Texas, Sherika. Uh -huh. Sherika yep. Sanders, PhD. How much fun was that, Allison? She is a rock star. She's so much fun. Man, she is. And you talk about purpose, purpose yeah. to oh, anyone's yeah. journey. So y'all check that out. But hey, today is very, something different. So some folks may know that we've been producing our this Week in Business History podcast for a couple of years now. It's one of about a dozen programs that make up the Supply Chain Now portfolio. Biz History focuses on lesser-known stories of leaders and innovation at the intersection of, you guessed it, business and history. We've recently published our 104th episode. Allison, I don't think episode numbers mean boo to anyone other than hosts. What do you think? Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. 104, yeah. Yeah, it's hard for more than I have. I tell you, we feel every one. Maybe that's why. But hey, a new episode a new episode drops every Tuesday, including these replays of our live sessions. We may have some listeners right now tuned into the audio replay, podcast replay of today's live show. So Allison, does that make sense on your end? Sure does. Are you a big history nerd like me? I, I like the history where it intersects with other things. So I like the fact that this there's purpose to business overlapping the history. I, I was never one to, to love history class, but the moment you were able to overlap it into another subject, that was fascinating to me. So I'm with you. trick me into liking it. <laughs> I'm with you. Hey, we got lots and lots of tricks up our sleeves here today, including as we walk through five stories, five interesting historical moments that I don't know about you, Allison. I know I learned something as we knocked out the research. So if we're learning some new things, that usually bodes well for our audience. Speaking of our audience, Allison, got a big, a big shout out to Catherine, part of our production team, helping to make things happen. We were just talking about changing out. What was that, Allison? Changing out Cadillac batteries oh, in the pre-show. fan motors. And, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Took eight, eight whiteboards. I map it out how to change a Cadillac battery. It sounds. Still don't know how to do it. Right. <laughs> Makes three of us. But Catherine, appreciate all the, your good work here. And of course, Amanda's with us here today. 
doing big things, excited, excited to hear their input along with all of our listeners. And, and that really brings up the next point. Give us your spin. You know, we're going to be walking through these five stories from, from food to space and all points in between. Let us know what you have found out maybe from a business history standpoint here in, in recent days, or give us your take on the stories we're going to be sharing with you. So, Allison, are we ready to dive in on our first story? First of five here today. Let's do it. All right. So let me bring up this graphic here. Right away, when I see this, the stack of graham crackers, it takes me back to my childhood. I'll, I'll, I'll offer up a free recipe to everybody, a very free, simple snack, but your kids will love it. But before we do that, let's talk about the surprising history of graham crackers. So Allison, Sylvester Graham was born July 5th, 1794 in Suffield, Connecticut. And there's a tie-in this week, right? July 5th. He would go on to become a Presbyterian minister, as well as a leader of the 19th century temperance movement here in the States, right? He preached regularly on many things, including the need for his followers to eat a natural, all-natural, wholesome diet. So in his view, that included whole grain, bread, and flour. Now, not only, Allison, did his preaching catch on with his flock, but businesses across the eastern U.S. began to make products that met his requirements. Now, although Pastor Graham never endorsed or profited from any of these products, the businesses would use his name. So Graham, Fl Graham Flour, Graham Bread, and wait for it, Graham Crackers, right? The National Biscuit Company, later named Nabisco, that everybody's heard of, right? And that's not an acronym. I forgot the word that maybe a portmanteau. Does that sound right, Alice? You, you had to ask. You didn't even, you didn't give me the heads up where I could have Googled that, researched it, <laughs> and pretended like I knew exactly what you were talking about. Well, you know, my timing is off today then. But National Biscuit Company, there's a word for when you take a syllable of each and then build a new word, but that's the, the, the Nabisco brand that everyone is familiar with here today. They would become the first company to mass market graham crackers in 1898. And Nabisco's Honeymade brand, let me show you these here. Allison, I could not find. I went, so, this, this is the modern day version branding of the Honeymade graham cracker by Nabisco. I searched and I searched for a 1980s version of this box because i'm gonna tell you allison we went through these things like by the pallet load now because i'm a man of my word let me give you all this free recipe because what we would do is we take these big old planks here and we wouldn't break them apart we'd wipe them down with peanut butter and then put another one on top and then we'd break it apart and if you dunk those things in a big glass of milk allison man if you close your <laughs> If <laughs> you close your eyes and dreamed hard enough, they almost tasted like Oreos, but they weren't quite as good. Yeah, but they were really good. Do you think, I, I love how you, you mentioned he was into like wholesome, you know, healthy, natural. Do you think he's rolling over in his grave knowing that it's a staple of s'mores? Like all we're doing is we're, we're throwing... We're throwing some chocolate marshmallows on that bad boy, putting it over a fire and calling <laughs> it dinner. All right, it's a vehicle for marshmallows and chocolate, <laughs> everything but temperance. Right. You know, I don't know. Pastor Graham seemed to be a very interesting type, and we're probably not doing him justice by focusing on the graham crackers. But you know what? That's a big. Um, what, what I also found interesting, Allison, is that he was okay 
with his name yeah. being used everywhere and didn't insist on profiting or, or brand, you know, that's, that would not happen these days. No. Right. No. And if nothing else that his family is kicking him for it, you know, right. Uh, right. It's his family today, yeah. you know, cause yeah. if there's a Luton, there's a fig Luton or a Giddens cracker, Hey, we're getting oh, our attorneys to contract everything up. Yeah. Right. Heck yeah. All right. So really quick. So that's the first of five stories. Chantel, great to see you here today. Of course, big member of the production team member. Can't wait to learn something new today. Chantel, this is going to be the show. It's going to be the gift that keeps on giving here today. Appreciate all of your good things. And Amanda, she's got my back. I love peanut butter and graham crackers even now, but give me all them s'mores, she says. Okay. But speaking of s'mores. Yes. Did you, I saw that fig looting. That's good. Have you heard about these marshmallows? Of course, I'm, st I'm straying from the gram. Yes, yes. But the marshmallows with chocolate inside of them, helping you manage the messiness of a s'mores. Oh, no, I haven't seen this. A, a friend of mine tested it, so they were fantastic. I, I am kind of doubtful because I worry that it limits the, the amount of chocolate, which I am very liberal on, <laughs> on a s'more. So, right. I kind of, I, I wonder, you know what I mean? Like, I don't like somebody telling me this is how much chocolate you're going to have on that. I, I want to be free to, to pick that. So I don't know. Don't mess with anything that's not broken is one of the, exactly. one of the things that comes to my mind. Uh, no, here, I want s'mores. So. That's right. <laughs> Allison says she's seen these marshmallows at Walmart and, and she definitely add more chocolate. See? And she called in. So Fig Lutons as a real thing in our family. We all, uh, my nan. Right. My, my nan and pop on one side and grandma and granddad and on the other side, my nan had a, had a cookie Tupperware in the same place in the kitchen. And when we were lucky, she had her homemade chocolate chip cookies in there. But, but most of the time it was fig Newtons, which the whole family embraced fig Lutons and uh, thousands and thousands of dad jokes later that per, that probably only we think are funny. That, that the big part of a nan's legacy. So miss her every day. Okay. So Allison, as we're going to be moving from graham crackers to the origin of the phrase, the best thing since what? Sliced bread. So hopefully I won't be milk toast here. I won't, I won't be as boring as white bread, but we're going to go, I'm going to give you some snapshot here on. So in this week in 1928, in how I believe you pronounce that is Chillicothe, Missouri. And of course, hopefully our listeners will either correct me or blast, but my maiden name is Krejci, so you can't offend me. I've been mispronounced every day since the day I was born. Anyway, so pre-sliced bread first went on sale this week, 1928, and it was baked by a local company out in Missouri that were used, that they used a machine designed by Otto Rowetter. Hmm. And Rowetter was a jeweler, and I guess he was also a multi-potentialite coming up with some sort of machine like this. But he had created this machine on paper and then on a, a fire in 1917, destroyed his prototype and his blueprints. And, you know, you want to talk about not backing up your data, which, wow. you know, we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. That's right. So people thought the invention would fail because the bread was going to get stale too quickly. But his buddy, Frank Bench, put the machine to use at Chillicothe's baking company and the rest is history. So, of course, there were reports that housewives were ecstatic that they could now expect a, quote, Thrill of pleasure when she sees each slice the exact counterpart of its fellows. And to that sexism, I would like to point out that my <laughs> husband would find that far more thrilling than I would. <laughs> but let's just face it. 
<laughs> but the fun fact that I found while researching this was that considerable research went into determining the right thickness for a slice, which was slightly less than half an inch. So if you ever need to pull out some some of your bread and measure that, you can do okay. so. But the timing of the machine was perfect because by the 30s, factory-produced bread loaves were designed to be softer than those produced at a typical bakery yeah. because the public equated the softness with freshness. And because mm. of that, factory loaves had to be pre-sliced. Interesting. Like it was tougher to, to slice it once you got it home. You know, have you ever, it's easy to slice like crunchy French bread. Right. It's not so easy to slice super soft. Yeah. But basically after seven years of, of all of this, Wonder Bread took off. And that's when it was sold in sliced form. In 2012, Wonder Bread disappeared from the shelves since its owner, Hostess, declared bankruptcy. If we all remember that. Remember when the Twinkies yes. and everybody yes. was panic and riots in the streets and all that. The next year after they went, they declared bankruptcy, another company stepped in and bought it. And then the brands returned. And so I guess you could almost say it's a, a second coming of something being better than sliced bread. <laughs> Nicely done, Allison. So many follow-up comments and dad jokes to make so little time. So many. You know, it's interesting because during the pandemic, like many, the, uh, a lot of folks resorted to making their own bread, right? In fact, I think they were, I mean, uh, so many folks are doing it. There, there were some empty shelves and for different things you needed. So Amanda is a wonderful bread maker. But when I came across the story, and now you're refreshing my memory, cutting, you know, especially like a, I think Picasso bread is what she got, you know, really good at. But cutting it and having, you know, making sure that the bottom slice wasn't like this thick and the top one's like wafer Please. thin. I mean, that was really tricky. So I can see why. Oh, yeah. Homemakers and really the whole population uh, or would be thrilled about nice, even half inch slices. And I think this is now a good time for me to make a confession. Sometimes when I open up the bread, I will skip the first slice. Yes. And go on because it's a little stale. Yep. I'm with you. What? So one final question. We could talk about bread a lot. I'll tell you, I love good bread. I love a good sandwich. What is... In your household, Allison, you and Matt, what's your go-to bread that y'all use? Well, I like like a, any kind of wheat. My husband likes really exciting white bread. Uh, um, you know, you know who's happy to hear that is uh, Pastor Graham. Yeah. Uh, he might be rolling still a little bit, but he's a little little grin on his face with you saying that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, uh, but when it comes to sandwiches, my mom has always made a really mean grilled cheese sandwich. And sometimes you just want mom's grilled cheese sandwich. I don't think there's anything fancy to it. It's just mom's grilled cheese sandwich, <laughs> you know, cutting triangles. That's right. Well, big, and I love, you, you marry that with a, a nice bowl of homemade tomato soup or even stuff out of the can. We eat it all day long. And by the way, Amanda says nothing thrills her more than sliced bread. Wow. That, How about that? That is setting the bar right there. That, <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> All right. So, Allison from Slice Bread, before we get into our third story here today, to my son Ben's, to his pleasure, he loves video games. And our third story is going gonna, is gonna to talk about video games. But you are part of an organization that's helping ensure that kids from families that, that are in need don't get left behind 
across the athletic games across Metro Atlanta. So I want you, I've got a little graphic here. Tell us about the Dave Krejci Foundation and what you are doing. Sure. Thanks for, thanks for highlighting us. So we are a nonprofit that focuses on helping kids play sports when their families can't afford it. And we are set up right here in Metro Atlanta area. So I know there are a handful of other organizations out there throughout the country that do something very similar, but we're just focused on making sure that if a kid wants to play a sport and the, the fees are what limits that, that we kind of help come in and plug in where they need us. That is awesome. And, and you know, if you're really big on outcomes like we are, right? Deeds, not words. Check this out. If you're listening to us, I've got this graphic on here. Over a thousand local kids across Metro Atlanta have played sports with the foundation's assistance, right? And that's, you're changing the trajectory of these kids with all of this great work. So how can folks help out? You know, how can they get involved? How can, how can they support you? Or, you know, what if there's someone listening in Cincinnati or Salem, Oregon? I don't know why I went to Salem, Oregon. Or who knows? If it, would you be open to benchmarking? So the best thing I can tell someone, only because I know that time is of the essence for everybody, is if you're interested in this, getting something set up very similar in, in your area, I would first encourage you to see if something like it is not already being done. So check out a lot of the police athletic leagues in your area are always looking for support. And I'm finding that a lot of the folks I'm talking to their, their pals, as they call their police athletic leagues, are open to them fundraising on their behalf and helping because those dollars, they go, they go to such good use and help and wow. impact communities right there. Wow. That, that's an excellent tip. So y'all check that out. And if they want to jump into and support the Dave Krejci Foundation, how can they do that? Definitely check us out, DaveKrejci.com. We're on social media as well, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. We've we're always raising money to, to help kids play. And we have specifically started reaching out to a lot of the organizations to help them amplify what they are already doing. So that's been, that's been really great. And that's helped us push over that thousand mark because more kids can get helped that way. Man, what an incredible impact over a thousand kids. DaveCrachey.com. And that last name is K-R-A-C-H-E.com. Y'all check it out and support it if you can. Okay. Uh, I can see that all we had to do is start the ball rolling around anything delicious and food related. Catherine says chocolate is the best part of the s'more. So clearly she's a big You're part right. of the, the liberal chocolate party, right? Mm -hmm. You could never have enough chocolate. I'm Very with you, much. Catherine. So Catherine also says, I'm wishing my smoothie was a grilled cheese right now. And a man is like, I was just thinking how good a grilled cheese sandwich sounded. I'm with you, man. Just the right amount of butter all oh. over the crust. Yeah. Oh, gosh. With good bread. Oh, man, you're mm -hmm. killing me. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Focus. Focus. <laughs> no, we're having for dinner tonight. So, but before we get there, story number three, I want to bring this up here. So, Allison, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong. So, on July 9th, 1981, Donkey Kong was released by, at the time, a little-known little known company, at least outside of Japan. Of course, Nintendo released Donkey Kong. Some folks may not know that. Now, Nintendo was started back in 1889 in Japan and initially focused, its core product was playing cards. The company began to diversify in the 1960s and would get into electronics 
in the 1970s, almost 100 years old. Talk about a big, big pivot. In the late 1970s, Nintendo would really fulfill their destiny because most folks recognize them now as part of the video game industry. But in the late 70s, that was a time of like Pong. And Allison, you know what? If sliced bread makes people go crazy, I guess that simple game of Pong, that was like a, that was, that was a phenomenon across the country, but that was where the fledgling video game industry was. Now it, Nintendo truly struck gold with Donkey Kong in 1981. Not only did the original game sell tens of millions of copies and become one of the most popular games of its era, you'd add Pac-Man to that and Galaga, but it also has essentially created a universe of Donkey Kong related products. Allison, do you remember the Donkey Kong Country games that began back in, in the mid 90s? Vaguely. Vaguely. Yeah. I'm hung yeah. up on Galaga right now. I saw okay. Pizza Hut. When you say Galaga, I think Pizza Hut. <laughs> yes. And the good old Pizza Hut with the big red glasses and the antique lighting fixtures and always two or three good video games in one corner, right? Yep. Good old days. All right. But Donkey Kong, so Allison, do you at least remember on Mario Kart where Donkey Kong would be dry? You could, you could select me Donkey Kong. He's a little bit slower, but you don't want to mess with him. He'd run you off the road. So here's a little known fact about the original Donkey Kong because it didn't just give rise to one video game legend. The iconic Mario, Mario character would first be rolled out in the 1981 version of Donkey Kong. And... If there's anything we don't have to talk about today, it's what Mario went on to do, right? Including becoming basically the the icon, the the symbol for all things Nintendo, right? I, I think there's only about 37 different versions of a Mario game, <laughs> and that plumber. is great plumber. That's <laughs> I doubt Ben's listening because I think he's out pulling weeds in my garden right now. But Mario is one of Ben's favorite all-time characters to the point that sometimes he tells us when folks look like Mario and we, he wants to go pull on their mustache to see if they're if they're messing with it. <laughs> so who would have thunk the Donkey Kong 1981 made the splash as much so? Now you, you said you were fixated, Allison, on Galaga. Was it Galaga one of your you know, go-tos as a kid? I think so, at least out at, because we didn't initially have, like I didn't have Atari but I did have an original NES. I did have one of the, I don't think I had Donkey Kong. I, I am pretty sure I had the original Mario Yeah. and I had Duck Hunt because I would regularly cheat at that. I mean, I would regularly play that game. Yeah. <laughs> Go right up to the, you know, right. Since, since I had a younger sister, I was allowed to be up closer to do Duck Hunt and she had to stay <laughs> further back. So. so I had Donkey Kong on an old system called the Intellivision. I cannot remember who made Intellivision. It might have been named a company. But Donkey Kong was my one of my least favorite games. For me, it was just very repetitive. And also, there wasn't a great like two-player version. You know, I, I, some of those, I don't know if it's Galaga for some of those others. You know, it was a it was a cool two-player version where y'all could both be against, you know, the, the evil asteroids or whomever it is at the same time. You know, even though even that early in the video game industry, but Donkey Kong was not one of my favorites. But nevertheless, July 9th, 1981, Donkey Kong released by Nintendo. All right. So clearly we don't have any video game <laughs> aficionados 
That's crazy uh, though, to think of how far it's come in 40 years. It is. And you think about, you know, some of the AI or aug augmented reality, the AR stuff and the, and the VR and the, just how like Ben, your son will never know the, was it the blowing into the video cartridge? Yes. He'll never know that. He'll never know. <laughs> he can, can, so to, okay, here's a good question. What? Are kids games now, kids, are, are games now, can you cheat on them like we did? Remember like the up, up, down, down, A, B, whatever? Yes. Well, the, Contra. Can you, can you do that on these games today? You know, that's such a great question because. Not that I'm encouraging it, but. No, but still that, that kind of, you, you, you could almost say that the cheating back in the eighties was kind of like program the earliest hackathons we'll there call it. How about there that? Was a, it was a coming of age. Yeah. Coming right. of age for sure. Now watching Ben play, yeah, Ben's a big Fortnite fan and he, he plays of course some of the Mario and Lego games. I am not sure if you can cheat with those things with any kind of codes. It's not quite a, it was almost like a urban legend with some of those things like the Contra code mm -hmm. up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, select start if you had a two-player you get 30 lives each kind of scary that you know yeah. that still they you know breakfast two days ago <laughs> right you got you don't know, do i remember that code they get 30 <laughs> lives on contra all right well well speaking of nice little segue here speaking of early trailblazers and kind of how far we have come from a technology and some of the things that powered even the earliest days of i'll call it modern technology tell us about Telstar One, Allison. Sure. So Telstar One, I looked up in this week in business history, 1962. Developed by AT&T, it became the world's first active communication satellite. They used the satellite to test basic features of communications via space. It was launched by NASA off a Delta rocket from Cape Canaveral. And right after the launch, Telstar enabled the first transatlantic television transmission linking the U.S. to France. So when they did this, the first non-public television pictures was a flag outside of satellite station in Maine. And then that went all the way to a satellite station in Northwest France on July 11th, 1962. Now there had sure. to be some Jerry Lewis TV shows in those earliest <laughs> transmissions. But... Well, you know, funny you say, because almost two weeks later, it did relay the first publicly available live transatlantic television signal. And here's what it was was shown in Europe by Eurovision and then in North America by NBC, CBS, ABC, and CBC. And the first public broadcast featured CBS's Walter Cronkite and NBC's Chet Hutley in New York and BBC's Richard Dimbley, I'm going to mispronounce his name, in Brussels. <laughs> and the first pictures were the Statue of Liberty in New York and the Eiffel Tower in Paris. And this is what cracks me up. The first broadcast, it was supposed to be just remarks by President JFK. John F. Kennedy, but the signal was acquired before the president was ready. Uh -oh. So they immediately had to cut to something. So what do you think in July the engineers cut to? Uh, NASA? No. no. What's, what's happening in July? July of 1963? Uh, 62. Base baseball. Very good. Very good. Engineers, they filled the time with a short segment of a televis televised game between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. And in case you're wondering who was up, the batter, Tony Taylor, was seen hitting a ball pitched by Cal Coots to the right fielder, George Altman. And from there, the video immediately switched first to Washington, D.C., and then to Cape Canaveral, 
and then to the Seattle's World's Fair, and then to Quebec, and then finally Stratford, Ontario, because apparently we all really needed lots of back and forth. The Washington segment included remarks by JFK, and then he was talking about the price of the American dollar, which was causing concern in Europe at the time. When Kennedy denied that the U.S. would devalue the dollar, it immediately strengthened on the world markets. And then Cronkite later observed, quote, we all glimpsed something of the true power of the instrument we had wrought. How about that? And ain't that the truth? So the, the electronics themselves on Telstar were exposed to radiation, which meant it had to be deactivated in early in 63. But all of it raised a lot of good questions like communication satellites, you know, should they be operated and controlled by private corporations or mm. by government control? So yeah, of course, the rest is history, but I thought it was a, a rather interesting, uh, I think it was prophetic for, for Cronkite to say that because all JFK had to say was, it's just, you know, everything's going to be fine. We're right. not going to devalue the dollar. And then all of a sudden things were better. Things were better. You know, I am so glad as I grab this image again, that this came out before Star Wars. Otherwise there'd be a lot of nervous people with Telstar 1 up in orbit because it's, it's got That's like a, a good point. A little I sneaking. It looks a little bit like the Death Star, does it not? You're right. <laughs> so, but you know, what's also interesting, and I, I'm assuming that baseball scene maybe was the first international, albeit short, international broadcast of baseball, I would assume. That's a good question. And through through communication satellite in space, I don't know. Yeah, I guess, because I, I can't think of, uh, unless something else was transmitted to Europe or anywhere else. Right. Yeah. Well, and then also the, the, the assumption I am drawing here is that we were, it's really not, it's not our fault that we're all about channel surfing because in the earliest days. Exactly. Right. They were just, the, oh yeah. So, whoever the engineer was in the control room, somebody should have calmed that or maybe switched to decaf before yes. the transmission went live. <laughs> That's right. Well, what a fascinating story and an early triumph for, and gosh, I think we're starting there to all the satellites that we have in place now, both currently operational and those defunct, right? That, that make up the kind of the belt of junk around the world to get to the point where now, I can't remember the system that Elon Musk, uh, what is Star his Starlink? Yeah. Starlink. Yeah. Right. It was really cool to see him provide Starlink to Ukraine and really help empower their, their communication in the good fight against uh, the Russian forces. So it's, it's really fascinating. That's the, yeah, it, it really is. All right. So that is a wonderful segue for, gosh, we've already gone through, we're, we're shooting through these and we're barely at the, is, is, is a half, is a 30 minute mark. Is it, are we at the top of the hour or the, or the bottom of the hour? We're just what you call efficient. Okay. And okay. We're, there. We're keep, we are basically the engineers in the control room swapping. Yes. We're just hitting the butt. <laughs> right. Like, here, watch some baseball. Oh, wait, listen to the president. Oh, wait. Hold on. Let's slice bread. Sure, the Eiffel Tower. Uh, Donkey Kong. Right. Uh, all right. Well, does anyone so, want a sandwich? Does anyone want a sandwich? <laughs> so we're going to stick with the space theme because, Allison, I am unapologetically a big old space nerd. And that's a highly scientific term. Big old space nerd. And we're about, we're entering really. Humanity, civilization is entering a whole new chapter where we're, where our universe, our foundational understanding of the universe is poised 
to change because we got the James Webb telescope, which is just a week or two weeks away from the time we published this. Today's July 5th. We're just a week or two weeks away from getting the first images and it's going to change our understanding, right? It really is. But before we were able to get there, I want to talk about Skylab because Allison, did you know a whole bunch about Skylab before we, we jumped on the live stream here today? No, I did not. We only talked a little bit in the green room and right. Yeah, no, I, I know very little about Skylab. Well, that makes two of us. That makes two of us. You know, I've, I've of course heard of it. I've seen the patches. I've even seen some pictures like this one here, this image, Allison, that we're showing. And to our listeners, if you're checking out the podcast replay via the RSS feed, you can find this live stream video across this week in business history's social footprint. But this image here is the Skylab four crew as they're departing, right? So it's, it's basically one of the final shots of Skylab. Now, on July 11th, 1979, the United States' first space station ever, Skylab, would fall out of orbit, re-entering Earth's atmosphere, where it'd largely burn up. Remnants of Skylab would mostly land around Perth, Australia, in that general vicinity. The only casualty that was reported was a cow that died after being struck by a piece of Skylab. Man. Bad luck. I shouldn't laugh. The visual, you know, this thing flying from the sky and then it's just, you hear a moo. And then no kidding. Cows enjoying life and fresh air and chewing cud one second and then getting struck by Skylab the next, but for several years. So, so that came to a crash, right? Before it came, before it crashed out of its orbit and came back into earth. For several years, NASA was hoping to use the new space shuttle program at the time to really send a full-blown repair mission, right? There was lots of mechanical problems that really were part of Skylab from its initial launch, where I think a few things got bumped and whatnot, to the orbiting, you know, orbital altitude, all that good stuff. But the problem was, initially, the space shuttle program was set to launch, you know, pun intended, 1979, right? However, it was pushed back at least two years to 1981, so that became a non-viable solution. Now, after, after Skylab, the U.S. began planning for a permanent space station, but that project was halted, and the efforts and funding were redirected to the U.S. participation in the International Space Station. And we know where that is here today, which unfortunately has also become an instrument of war and foreign policy as we've heard a variety of threats and what should be the you know humanity's ultimate symbol of collaboration and peace and, and working together but unfortunately that's not where we are so allison with all of that said are you also a space nerd uh, did you any of this skylab story new to you the skylab stuff definitely was and i loved if you want to pull that picture back up i loved the story you were talking about that that piece that wasn't wasn't part of the original installation. I guess yes. it was kind of. Do you know what what is that foil? So that is some kind of of uh, not foil, but I can't remember the type of material it was. But to your point, because I, I love I love what you called it, the duct tape fix, because astronauts had to get really creative. As part of the launch, I think they had a shield get knocked off, and the shield was not only supposed to protect from solar pressures but also other 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 types of energy you'll find in orbit 
So the astronauts, they basically saved it from the get-go. They got creative with whatever this covering is. And if you're, if you're viewing this live stream, you'll see that there is, it looks like the side of a tinfoil shed. So what it looks like, but Allison also loved the duct tape reference. But anyway, I guess you got to do whatever it takes, yes. you know, in space when you have limited resources and fixes, right? So if you, if you had the chance to go to space, yes. would you, would you do it? You know, I admire William Shatner. I couldn't remember what, what William Shatner's age is, but you see when he got launched with SpaceX and I want to say he's like 80. I can only imagine the impact of, of even brief space travel, but I think regardless of my age and regardless whenever the invite would come, I think you got to jump on it because to see, just to be able to see Earth, and, and if we remember Apollo's astronauts as they were capturing Earthrise, I think they called it, right? And that context and that perspective you see on the your, what is all of life to you, what's all of everything you know right there. And to be able to see that from that different type of view and also to kind of see what else is, you know, in the vast vastness of space, I think it would have to be life-changing. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. It would be something else. My husband and I always have conversations about this. Like, would you go if you had the option? And I don't know if I would. And really? I don't know if I'm just not as much of a, of a space nerd as maybe he is. Or maybe it's because I'm terrified of accidentally being sent out into the unknown and then dying a slow, painful <laughs> existence where no one can hear you scream. So I don't really know what, what the concern there is. But, but yeah, that would be kind of where I'm at. Do you remember Space Camp, the movie from 1986? Yes. I thought that was the coolest movie. You know, to be prepping at, at a kid's camp and all of a sudden you get launched into space and you've got to, you know, kind of take controls of a real space shuttle. That, you know, that movie was really cool. But but space shuttle program in general of how powerful that uh, that the impact was on not just kids in the, in the U.S., but but globally, you know, and to have that, you know, in our rooms on you know third grade and second grade and rolled in and, and see the launch. And that, those things are going to be irreplaceable in terms of impact I think it had on so many folks. Now, Amanda says that would be a big no for her. I'm with you, Allison. I'd rather, I'd be afraid of the void as well. So, hey, that's okay. Different strokes. Right. Different right. Yeah. folks. Somebody else can have my ticket. But I am fascinated with a lot of these shows out there now that are focused on space and kind of the unknown. And I've never really been one for the traditional sci-fi like Star Trek I could take it or leave it. I don't really, yes. whatever. But I mean, some of these shows that are crossed between, what do they call it? Like alternate history. Yes. I think Apple TV has a, for all mankind, has a, yes. a show out. That's basically what would have happened had the, the what the Russians beat us to the moon or yep. the Chinese beat us. And it's, it's a fascinating kind of look at what might have happened. But shows like that, I'm really curious about. I like those those kind of space intersecting, again, space intersecting business, yes. intersecting politics. Yes. Live long and prosper, Allison. Live long and prosper. All right. So, so let's, you as we start. That's right. right. Wrong one. Sorry. <laughs> wrong wrong universe. Wrong Sorry. metaverse. Sorry. Okay. Well, folks, as we start to wrap, I want to share one more thing. And I've really enjoyed co-hosting this Biz History Live with the one and only Allison Giddens. But folks, if you, um, yeah, I'll tell you. 
Kelly Barner is a master storyteller. We yeah. partnered with Kelly about, I don't know, about a year or so ago on this specific series. And not only is she real passionate about history, but she is a great, great storyteller. So check out our episode we dropped today was a classic, one of Kelly's classics, frankly, where she dives into the Wall Street Journal, the genesis of the Wall Street Journal. You'll be surprised. You'll be surprised about the intertwining of the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the Wall Street Journal. So y'all check that out on our Biz History, This Week in Business History, RSS feed, and let us know what you think. Okay, Allison, beyond the Dave Krejci Foundation, the folks, you can check that out at DaveKrejci.com, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. How else can folks connect with Allison Giddens? Find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there. Allison Giddens. I think if you type me in, I want to say that is, that's my name. And I stole it as one of the, the LinkedIn, you know, when they let you pick the name initially, you know, so. Love it. Well, check it out. You're not going to want to, you don't want to miss everything we've talked about related to Allison, but from book reviews to her take on business and manufacturing, supply chain. She's doing great work when it comes to educating our youth and what we call the now generation because they're already having an impact. I don't like the next generation. It's the now generation. Let's leave the next generation with Star Trek in terms of where it fits. It's all about the now generation. And now I, like I appreciate I like your work there as well. Okay, so that is going to wrap here today. Big thanks to Allison. Big thanks to everyone that showed up in the comments. Of course, the production team, Amanda, Catherine, Chantel, and more. And big thanks to all of our listeners. Appreciate all the feedback we get across social and email and the website and the like. Let us know. Let us know what was your favorite story here today. Or, you know, if you've got an idea for a show, we'll take that too. On behalf of our entire team here at This Week in Business History, Allison Giddens and Scott Luton signing off for today, challenging you, as we always do, to do good, to give forward, and to be the change. On that note, we'll see you next time right back here on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.